Building the rocket engine that will take us back to the moon. This week on Planetary Radio. Hi everyone, welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan. And are we jam-packed this week? We'll hear from John Villia, the man from Pratt & Whitney Rocketdyne, who is in charge of getting the J-2X rocket engine built. Emily Lakdawalla will tell us what we know about asteroids that can and do smack down on Mars. Not much, really. And then Bruce Betts will join me for a look at the night sky and news about our expanding 5th anniversary prize package. Now you can win more than a Mars meteorite fragment. Just time enough to mention this week's top story, kudos to spacewalker Scott E. Perazinski, who completed one of the most challenging and dangerous repair jobs ever. Scott successfully mended a torn solar array on the International Space Station. He also managed to avoid going down in history as the first electrocuted astronaut. We'll put a link to the story at planetary.org slash radio. Back in a minute with John Villa. here's Emily. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, We hear a lot about the hazard from near-Earth objects. Is there such a thing as near-Mars objects? Although there probably are asteroids whose orbits will eventually intersect with Mars, there is no one in the astronomical community who is specifically looking for potential Mars impactors. The scientists who are worried about Earth impactors do check the near-Earth asteroid population to see if they have close approaches to Mars or other planets, because a close approach to the gravity well of a planet will change the orbit of a near-Earth object, making it more or less likely to strike Earth in the future. But potential Mars impactors that are not on Earth-crossing orbits are, by definition, more distant from Earth than near-Earth objects, so they are fainter, and therefore not as likely to have been discovered unless they are quite large. The next Martian impact will almost certainly be from an object too small to be discovered with current telescopes. In fact, the Mars impactors that we should be most worried about may be practically impossible to discover before they hit. Stay tuned to Planetary Radio to find out more. John Villa is Pratt & Whitney Rocketdyne's program manager for the J-2X. John and his crew are on a tight schedule set by NASA for development of this latest edition of a series of rocket engines that once took us to the moon and promises to do so again. I got him on the line from his Southern California office just a few days ago. John, thanks very much for joining us on Planetary Radio, and uh, congratulations to you and Pratt & Whitney Rocketdyne for uh, getting this uh, contract a few months ago that uh, is intended to take humans back to the moon. Yeah, we're proud to get the work, and we're excited about it. Tell us why, first of all, liquid-fueled rockets that really, in their basic design, are not so different from what Robert Goddard came up with so many years ago. Why are they so good still at getting us into space and then getting us around places once we're up there? Well, there's a couple of features that are nice about them. They give you pretty good performance. For any chemical propulsion, the liquid engines give you better specific impulse or a miles per gallon type performance than the solids do. The other thing that's nice about them is you can throttle them and shut them off when you want to. The alternatives generally like a solid would require you you light them, you stand back, let them run their course, and then they're done when they're done. Was I accurate in what I said that really if you get down to the basic design, 
they haven't changed that much since Goddard's days, although the technology has uh, gone light years. I think they're analogous to automobile engines. The original early <laughs> automobile engines were pretty much simple piston internal combustion engines, and uh, since then they've become far more sophisticated, more efficient, more reliable, but there's still the basic cycle. The same is true for these engines. You've got quite a legacy just within this series of engines, the the J-2, which uh, took us to the moon before. Yeah, the J-2 was used on the second and the third stage of the Saturn V launch vehicle. You know, there were five of them on the second stage and then one of them on the third stage, and they were they were real workhorses for the whole lunar program. Tell us a little bit more about the history of this this uh, engine, the the J two series. It's even, I guess, components of uh, of the engine. I mean, I saw that uh, just the the turbo pump portion of uh, of this engine was uh, also saw use elsewhere. Sure. Um, well, back in the sixties, while they were doing the lunar missions, the engineers that had developed them were on hand to support the lunar missions. While they were doing that, they were also working on an upgraded design called J2S for Simplified. And the J2S was really a completely different engine. It was more thrust, better performance, and they upgraded everything they learned while they were developing the original J2. Well, they never upgraded the Saturn V, so the J2Ss just went into mothballs. In the 90s, when we were working on the X-33 program, we took the turbo pumps from the J2S and the gas generator from the basic J-2 and married them with an aerospike thrust chamber, which is a really new type of rocket engine design altogether. And the aerospike, I, I think the, the big deal about that is, I mean, it looks very different from the, the bell-shaped uh, combustion chamber we're all used to with rocket engines, but the hope was that it would uh, be more efficient both in atmosphere and out of it or something like that? Right. Because the um, aerospike, the fire is on the outside of the nozzle, if you will, it can expand or contract depending on the the atmospheric back pressure, so it's more efficient along more of the uh, trajectory of the vehicle. And, you know, to kind of picture what they look like, if you ever see the Star Wars movies, uh, the Millennium Falcon on the back end of that, the, <laughs> the engine on the back is very much like an aerospike. I never thought of that, that when that thing lights up blue, we're looking at uh, aerospike. I don't know if it was in the future or a galaxy long, long ago, but... Uh, Maybe there were Pratt & Whitney uh, turbo pumps in there. Uh, <laughs> Perhaps, but it certainly is an easy way to visualize what an aerospike would look like when it's integrated with a vehicle. Let's talk about the turbo pumps because, I mean, I remember reading about these as a kid, reading about the Saturn V, the J2, and, of course, the mighty F1 that no rocket engine since has equaled. And, and really, it seemed that these pumps were the most amazing part of the technology. I, I don't know. You build them. Do you agree? Yeah, they're very much the heart of the engine in the sense that they really have a tough job to do. Pumping hydrogen is one of the hardest things that we know how to do uh, because the amount of work that requires to pump hydrogen is more than any other liquid because, the, you know, the density of the liquid that you're talking about requires more work. Hydrogen's very undense, meaning that it's got about half the density of balsa wood. If you were to have a pool of liquid hydrogen, <laughs> throw some balsa wood, and it would sink like a rock. <laughs> So it takes up a lot of space, and it's very lightweight, but pumping it, it's like pumping, almost like pumping air. It's real tough as a liquid to pump. And so they have to get very sophisticated. It's also complicated by the fact that it's the second coldest liquid. So the pump end is really contracting, getting cold, while the turbine end is hot. It's, uh, you know, hotter than an oven. It's, it's, and so you have to kind of keep the cold end cold and the hot end hot. And a lot going on with all the rotating components that are connected while they're trying to shrink in different directions. How much hydrogen do you need to move through this to uh, have the J2X do what it's supposed to? Well, it 
let me think, it's about 100 pounds per second. And, and given that it's very non-dense, it really is a lot of volumetric flow rate. How fast is that pump spinning? This pump is designed to spin at about 30,000 revolutions per minute. So one of the challenges is just figuring out how to make it hold hold together, keep from flying apart. Absolutely. We, we set some of the, 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 the thing that limits the velocity in which it rotates is how well the pumping portion can keep from basically exploding due to centrifugal forces. Hmm. So that's what sets the speed, and then you, of course, size everything around that speed limit. What sets this newest version uh, of the J2 apart from uh, both the original and, and the J2S, which was already, as you said, an improved version of this engine? Well, this one does two things. This one gives you 294,000 pounds of thrust. The original J2 gave you 230,000 pounds of thrust, and the J2S was 230, excuse me, it was two, yeah, 236,000 pounds of thrust. So at 294, it's a lot of extra thrust. And that allows you to lift a heavier payload, given where they light this thing off. The other big improvement is in specific impulse, and that's how many pounds per second of propellant you need to put into an engine to get a pound of thrust. And so when you're talking about an engine uh, like the original J2, it had a measure of 425. So for every, for every pound per second of propellant you put into it, you got 425 pounds of thrust. Hmm. Okay, Ours, our engine will give you 448 pounds of thrust. And every little bit counts when you're trying to get something uh, out of Earth's uh, gravity well. Exactly, and it allows, you the, it allows the propellant tanks to be a lot smaller for doing the same job. And so this specific impulse that we're getting is really a record for this class of engine, which is a gas generator type engine. That's John Villia, program manager for the J2X rocket engine. He'll tell us more when Planetary Radio continues. I'm Robert Picardo. I traveled across the galaxy as the doctor in Star Trek Voyager. Then I joined the Planetary Society to become part of the real adventure of space exploration. The Society fights for missions that unveil the secrets of the solar system. It searches for other intelligences in the universe, and it built the first solar sail. It also shares the wonder through this radio show, its website, and other exciting projects that reach around the globe. I'm proud to be part of this greatest of all voyages, and I hope you'll consider joining us. You can learn more about the Planetary Society at our website, planetary.org radio, or by calling 1-800-9-WORLDS. Planetary Radio listeners who aren't yet members can join and receive a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Our nearly 100,000 members receive the internationally acclaimed Planetary Report magazine. That's planetary.org radio. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. My guest is John Villia of Pratt & Whitney Rocketdyne, where he is in charge of creating the J-2X rocket engine, a key component in NASA's Constellation system that will take humans back to the moon. I have to think, without having read this, that uh, in the, well, boy, it's uh, going on 50 years since the uh, J-2 was committed to, that there have, been, uh, there have also been enormous improvements in, in, in material science and, and maybe also in how you control these engines? Absolutely. Well, one of the things we've done is we've gotten rid of some of the parts that were um, tough to work with. Uh, aluminum beryllium was what the turbo pump housings were made of. We got rid of the beryllium because whenever you machine that and handle that, you had to do it in a controlled atmosphere because beryllium is, is uh, toxic. Hmm. And so we've gone to a non-toxic materials base so, which give you, gives a similar strength and reliability. 
for the electronics, well, they, they had some awfully primitive electronics. The moon mission is amazing when you think about it because any Palm pilot today has far more computing power than the total lunar mission. And so we're taking advantage of the computing power we have to do better, more precise controls, better health monitoring as we do as we run the engine. Tell us how this engine uh, sort of fits in, if you will, to the Ares vehicles. Yeah, this is actually the second stage of both the Ares 1 and the Ares 5. The Ares 1 is the crew launch vehicle launcher. Its first stage is a solid propellant rocket motor, very much like they use on the side of the shuttle. They've just lengthened it, and they have a fifth segment. There's four segments on the current shuttle. So that five-segment solid is the first stage. We sit on a liquid stage on top of that. And then the crew um, launch ve- or the crew vehicle, which is called Orion, sits on top of the second stage. So it'll look very much like a traditional rocket with a capsule on top. Our J2 engine is buried at the bottom of that second stage. And so on the Ares 5, it's slightly different. There's five liquid engines on the first stage, along with two strap-on solids on the side of that first stage. We're again on that second stage, but we're a larger second stage. Because on the cargo launch vehicle, we fire to get the payload into orbit, and it sits there for a while and waits for the crew to join up with it. When the crew has joined up, everything's checked out, ready to go. Our engine will then fire once more and lob everything towards the moon. You know, what's interesting about that model, I remember, again, as a kid, giving away my age, reading books by some of the early uh, uh, engineers, rocket, uh, rocket engineers, Von Braun and others, where they used exactly this kind of model, a heavy lift vehicle that put a whole bunch of stuff up there, and then you boosted the humans up to, uh, to take their place and go to the moon or uh, beyond. Yeah, it's really a safer way to go because you can put the payload into orbit, check it out remotely before you risk people on a launch. And then once everything is good to go, then, of course, you put people into orbit, rendezvous, and off you go. Do I have it right? Uh, the, the first stage of the, uh, the Ares 5 vehicle, is that still uh, slated to use the space shuttle main engine der- uh, derivative? No, actually, the first stage of the Ares 5 will now use the RS-68 engine, which is used on the Delta IV launch vehicle. And so there, the space shuttle main engine, which uh, is still, oh, what, I guess about a, uh, not quite a third more powerful than the J-2X, and, and which is also built, I believe, by Pratt & Whitney Rocketdyne, that one is no longer part of the program. No, it's not. It's been replaced by the RS-68, which we build as well, and it's 650,000 pounds of thrust. The shuttle is about 425,000 pounds of thrust, depending on its throttle setting, but the RS-68 is 50% more thrust, and on a first-stage booster, that extra thrust is a big deal because it lifts a lot more per engine. Hmm. With with five RS-68s on the bottom of that and then two five-segment solids, that's really quite a brute. It can put a lot into orbit. So where are you uh, now in this program? Are things on track, uh, and uh, does it look like, at least as far as uh, the Rocketdyne contribution, that uh, we're, we're on track for the moon? We are on track. It's surprising. We're, we're, we've been working on this engine for um, coming up on two years under various contractual mechanisms. We're actually still on schedule to get our first engine in a test stand when we first predicted we would, and that'll be sometime at the beginning of 2010. So really, we're right on top of it, and uh, I'm thinking that uh, it might be kind of fun to uh, pick up some audio from that. Will there be press coverage of that event? Yes, there will be. And where is it going to take place? I know that really a big part of the history of Southern California, or at least the space program in Southern California, was uh, the testing of these engines uh, up in the hills behind Los Angeles. Yeah, that's where I started my career, up at Santa Susana. That was, that was a fun time, but we'll be doing our testing at the Stennis Space Center in Mississippi. 
Uh, we have most of the active test stands right in the, in the nation going on there right now, and we've already taken over the A1 test complex. We did that about a year ago. We've refurbished it. We've installed this power pack into there, and the testing is uh, you know, getting ready to go forward. We're about to start testing the power pack portion of our engine. That's coming up here later in November, so we're looking forward to that. You've been in this uh, game for quite a while, the purest form of rocket science, I suppose. I've been I've been at this for about 25 years now, and uh, this is this is a great job. I I can't I can't imagine having more fun at work than this job. Hmm. So, the, is the J2X um, an engine that you foresee serving the needs of the United States, uh, the space needs of the United States, for for a long time to come? Absolutely, it's going to be the workhorse for a long time to come. And one of the reasons why they selected it for both the Ares One and the Ares Five is it's one of the few engines that can do the whole mission. Uh, it's going to be the workhorse for exploration. We're told we're on the critical path now for getting humans back into space on the Orion, and so we're working to make sure that our schedule never slips. And it's a, it's kind of a pressure cooker situation, and it's kind of a nice place to be because we do get all the attention and all the help we need when we need it. But so far, the engine's looking like it's really going to be a workhorse for decades to come. With luck, in a few years, you're going to be in a place where you've been before, and that is uh, watching humans basically sitting on top of, of your engines, on top of a, a brand-new vehicle. That has to be, that has to be some nail-biting there, but it has to be uh, enormously rewarding as well. It is, and, and I think that we're making sure that we do all the right things right now because it's one of the you, you can't fix it later. You've got to put the fixes in right now. And so everyone's being reminded of that. We have astronauts working with us on the program, and they're constantly here to make it clear to us that there are people there whose lives depend on this. John, we're out of time. Thanks very much for joining us, and uh, good luck with that test firing and uh, everything that uh, still is ahead of us for the J2X program. Thank you very much. John Villa is the program manager for the J2X rocket engine program that will be on the bottom of, as you heard, some of the stages of those Ares vehicles that will take us back to the moon and with luck beyond. He is at Pratt & Whitney Rocketdyne, the company that has built so many of the engines that have powered uh, this nation's uh, effort to uh, explore space. We'll do a little uh, exploring of space of our own as we do every week with Bruce Betts in this week's edition of What's Up. That's right after a return visit from Emily. I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with Q&A. We don't currently know if any of the thousands of asteroids that we have discovered is on a collision course for Mars. Pretty soon, a new generation of asteroid-hunting telescopes will start operating, which should yield the discoveries of many thousands more Mars-crossing asteroids, and scientists will probably start checking to see if any of them is likely to hit the red planet anytime soon. We do know that asteroids strike Mars from time to time, because Mars Global Surveyor discovered at least 20 new craters on Mars during its nine years of operation, in images covering only 30% of the surface. In the future, if there are permanent human bases on Mars, it will become very important to understand the Mars-crossing asteroid population. In fact, future Mars residents face a much larger threat from asteroids than Earth residents do, because Mars's thin atmosphere is not nearly as good a shield against small asteroids as Earth's is, and there are a great many more small asteroids than there are large ones. Future Martian bases may have to be sighted in tunnels or caves underground to avoid the threat of rocks falling from the skies. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. Planetary Radio. 
from Studio B at the Planetary Society and not quite live, this is What's Up with the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society, Dr. Bruce Betts. Studio B, that being Emily's office because she's not here today. (laughs) Yeah, we got kicked out of Studio A because Lou's being interviewed by Croatian TV. Tell us what's up. But we have good stuff. We have better stuff. First, we have to... (laughs) First, we talk about... uh, that comment you brought up last week, I was blitzed from travel. I hadn't seen anything, <laughs> didn't know it was out there, and so basically I was a raving lunatic. I did tell you people did well. about a real comment that oh. was out there. Elementary, my dear. I Holmes. did not tell them about the one you were talking about, apparently. <laughs> I told them about Alonio's comment that indeed is visible in binoculars, but of course now I know and many others, and you with your pulse on the finger of observational astronomy knew that there has been a naked eye outburst, which sounds, God, that sounds painful, of Comet Holmes. (laughs) A million times as bright as it was before the outburst. It was a freaky little thing. It was a dim telescope object and then had this massive outburst, shed a whole bunch of stuff, that's the technical term, mm-hmm. and uh, it's been shining as brightly as uh, like magnitude 3 or a little brighter, magnitude 2.5. Not uh, bad. Naked eye, theoretically, for a, for a point object is magnitude 6 in a dark sky. 2.5 for a comet, still maybe tough naked eye in a lot of places because it's a fuzzball. But you mm. can go out there. It is in... Uh, Perseus, the best uh, best way to do it is probably search Comet Holmes finder chart out on the web. Really freaky object, not a lot of precedence for this. Comets do outburst, but this visibility change is uh, truly unusual. Well, Mercury's making a sad little showing these days uh, in, in the uh, glow of sunrise in the pre-dawn. You can look for it about 30 minutes before sunrise, just above the in east horizon. And it's far to the lower left, a much brighter Venus, which can't miss still in the pre-dawn, brightest star-like object. And then look above Venus and the brightest star-like object above that, which is much dimmer than Venus, is indeed Saturn. So a big party in the pre-dawn sky. You've got Mars in the evening sky. Checked it out. Out the other night, looking quite, uh, quite bright. Not not Venus-like, but bright, almost as bright as the brightest star in the sky. Not quite there. Uh, rising in the mid-evening in the east, it's the reddish-looking thing, and uh, will be high, high overhead in before dawn. And we've still got Jupiter hanging out, getting very low in the southwest, west, just after sunset. Brightest star-like object there. So that's the Planet Roundup. We move on to Random Space Fact! I like the little chair squeak in the middle of that. I think you should keep that. Thanks. Oh, now, now it won't, won't do it for course. me. <laughs> Mercury, of course, the speediest planet in our solar system, zipping around. And it's at its fastest, it goes around the sun at nearly 60 kilometers per second. Ooh. That's very fast, yeah. Zippy, I tell you. I'd like to go that fast. <laughs> okay. Well, you're going, you know, a good fraction of that on, on Earth. Uh, let's move on to the trivia contest. We asked you about Sputnik. What was the rocket? What kind of rocket launched Sputnik into orbit? How'd we do? Wow. What's really significant here is that people have caught on. They know that by entering during this period, including this This is the very first contest, weekly contest, that makes the entrance also eligible for our fifth anniversary prizes. And sure enough, uh, we have like tripled the number of entries. Pretty impressive, getting hard to get through my inbox. 
But uh, here you go. First time winner. Interesting. Has been trying for a long time. Candace Murray. Candace Murray said it was the R7 Semiorca, a NASO name SS6 Sapwood. They come up with all these faintly insulting names for old Soviet uh, uh, rockets, of course. Soviet Union name 8K71. But basically, R7 is what virtually everybody came up with. Candace. You came through. We're going to send you a Planetary Radio T-shirt. Thanks very much. Indeed, the R7. You can actually uh, trace the heritage of uh, the Soyuz very directly all the way back to that. When they find something that works, they they stick with it. Mm, Yeah, yeah, (laughs) they're still going. They're still launching them. Uh, It's great. Somebody said one's going to launch... uh, down in uh, Guyana, uh, they're going to start uh, putting them mm-hmm. up from where they launch uh, Ariane's. This is correct. Let's go on to the next trivia uh, question, because I know you have some more things to share with you us. You betcha. What is the escape velocity from Jupiter? For Earth, it's about mm. 11 kilometers per second to, mm-hmm. to escape the gravitational pull of, of the Earth. What is it for Jupiter to you know, the nearest kilometer per second, let's say? Go to planetary.org slash radio to find out how to enter. And what else are they competing for? By entering this contest, they'll enter for a, a T-shirt. But what else? Man? Oh, so much more. Because we are in the middle of uh, taking entries that will also be up for that fifth anniversary uh, contest that we're running. If you enter in this one, you will have that many more chances, one more chance when we do our big drawing. I think it's the November 26th show, Monday the 26th, the show that begins to air that date. We already have told people that that somebody out there is going to win a grand prize of a Mars meteorite fragment. It came today. It's here. I saw it. Now, it's small because... What do you want? It's a Mars meteorite fragment. We only have 30 small rocks from Mars in total. <laughs> so if you get any piece, the profound thing is it's a piece of rock that came from Mars. It's Hello? a piece of Mars. It's a piece of Mars. We've already had one listener say he, that if he wins, he promises not to eat it. <laughs> but you know what else I'm happy to say? Well, first of all, let's credit spaceflory.com. And our good friend Florian Noller, who uh, donated this, made it available for us to give away to you. Uh, you. If you check his website, you'll find that he has other stuff like this and all kinds of space memorabilia signed by astronauts and others. But you know what also happened today? We have to also credit Vision Video Games because they have donated two copies of Space Station Sim 2.0. This is a sim game, a simulation game that lets you run your own space station. That's cool. Extremely cool. Space Review said one of the best contemporary space program themed games I have ever seen. And most importantly, it's fun. All credit to Space Station Sim at uh, Vision Video Games. You can find them at uh, vision-play.com or or just Google Space Station Sim if you're interested in looking this up. I have to read you this line from the back of the box for the game. It has all kinds of cool stuff that it talks about. It says, you can then create up to six crew members to perform experiments, repair equipment, and live and love at 17,500 miles per hour. (laughs) Emphasis mine. I I have no idea. I haven't played it yet. It just came today. (laughs) Rated E for everyone. That's right. It's rated E for everyone, 10 plus. Lest you think otherwise. I don't think it gets into... It's because you focus on it. Right. All right. (laughs) It's just my dirty mind. Yeah, okay. But it really does look incredibly cool, and I'll have a better report next week. Okay, you come back with your review and after doing your professional duty of playing the video game. You betcha. But we have two of these to give away to two of our lucky fifth anniversary winners. Fabu. Okay. Oh, by the way, 
you want to answer that uh, question that Bruce uh, just threw out there by the 12th of November, Monday the 12th, at 2 p.m. Pacific. Now we're done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky. Think about Venetian blinds, open or closed. Thank you. Good night. Someday I'll tell you about uh, the concept I came up with a, with a friend in college, Venetian geese. But I'm not going to describe it on air. People will have to write. He's Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary uh, Society. He blinds us with science every week here on What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. Have a great week. Thank you.